Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you all. Happy New Year. I hope you had a great holiday. Are you ready for today? <laughs> On the way to school this morning, I told my oldest two children what our topic was today for Bible study, and they both went, oh, my. So, yes, this will be a good one. So before we get into it, let's have a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of a new year, and we ask that you fill us up with your spirit. Help us to be grateful for what we were able to do and who we were able to see over the holidays. Help us to be inspired in this new year to do the work of extending your kingdom here on earth, to know what it is that we are able to do to help meet the needs of all the people around us who you love. May this Bible study help to guide our path as we grow closer to you day by day. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So a little bit of housekeeping real fast. We have a new schedule for the spring semester. So if you have not gotten a bookmark, we had these at the last day in December. We've got them at all the doors, so grab one on your way out. Make sure you stick it in your Bibles. Also, if you did not get an email this week, reminder for this class, make sure you sign up on our sign-in sheets there at all the doors as well so that we can make sure that you know what's coming up and when we will and will not have class. As we take a look at the schedule, we are pretty solid with one exception, and that's March 18th. That is spring break which means even in Holy Week, the week after Easter, all of those weeks we are having Bible study. It's really just spring break. So take this with you, make sure you know when and where, even though each week we will send an email to confirm all of that, this will help you make your plans. Like I said, today we get some good drama. This is when the Bible gets less Bible-y. So, I hope that you read ahead. Um, we're going to go through and read a few passages as well, but it does help to perhaps think a little bit before we come on days like this. This one's a little um, more dynamic than some of the sections that we have done. So, we're going to begin with the middle of chapter 18. So, this is 18b, and effectively, we will start at verse 17. Let's take a look at the scope of today's lesson. We're going to start with B, and we're going to go through 20. Well, I thought I might like that marker, but I don't. Hold on. We've got four sections today. The first is going to be the judgment on Sodom. All the good stuff. Then... We're going to discuss the sin of Sodom. Third, after we get through that light bit of work, we're going to discuss the shame of Moab and Ammon. Oh, that's two M's. And then finally, to kind of tidy us off at the end of chapter 20, we're going to talk about Abimelech, when Abraham and Sarah go to see Abimelech. So let's get rolling. Chapter 18, verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? 
Seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? No, for I have chosen him that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, how great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah and how very grave their sin. I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. We'll stop there. Let's set this up. Remember that the angels have just visited Abraham and Sarah. Those angel visitors appeared at their tent and Abraham was extremely hospitable. And in that hospitality, those angel visitors said that Sarah would get pregnant, and Sarah laughed. The angels said, we heard you laugh. And she said, I didn't laugh. And they said, oh, yes, you did. This is the next verse. All right? So not a lot has happened in that moment. Sarah has received that promise. Abraham has received that promise. And in that moment of the promise, something sort of solidified between God and Abraham. All of a sudden, the shift here is that Abraham is now on the inside, right? God has somehow brought Abraham in like a prophet, like perhaps even the aides that those angels were, and he debates. God is effectively talking to himself at this point, saying, okay, so Abraham is a nice guy. Abraham's going to build the nation, but can Abraham see everything? God's questioning how much Abraham should see, maybe can handle, because the world is messy. And there are some places in the world where things are not going well, i.e. Sodom and Gomorrah. But then God says, nope, Abraham can handle it. And so he effectively takes Abraham along with the angels to see what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. There's an interesting dynamic here around God seemingly going to discover what's going on, right? So one might ask, why does God not know what's going on? I mean, in general, God doesn't have to see everything, right, to know what's going on. God is, I mean, God and all. And so in this moment, there's some interesting dynamics happening. So a reminder, since it's been a bit since we've been together, that these stories are being written when the Israelites are in exile. One big question that the Israelites wrestle with while they're in exile is why bad things happen. There is a theological term for this called theodicy. Is that one you've heard before? Theodicy. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. The Odyssey is the problem of evil. Effectively asking the question, where is evil coming from? Does God cause the evil? If God doesn't cause the evil, why does God allow the evil? And then why does evil seem to impact everyone, even the good people? Can you get away from evil? Can you earn your way out of evil? And on and on. The Odyssey is the study of evil. We're going to get there later on in this chapter. But as we get into Sodom and Gomorrah, and then we get into Moab and Ammon, remember that the Israelites are wrestling with this idea of 
how God really works. Because up to that point, before they went into exile, God seemed to work really well, right? God took them out of Egypt, gave them the promised land, raised up the kingdom. Things were good. But when that all fell apart, they had to figure out perhaps a more complicated or sophisticated way of understanding God. So when they go back and write these stories, they're trying to fill in some of God's characteristics. So one question someone may ask is, why doesn't God know what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? The better question is, why do the Israelites want to tell a story about how God doesn't seem to know what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? God knows. But the story is not told that way. So let's keep on going to see perhaps the way that they structure this story to see if we can learn a bit more about the Israelites and what they began to believe about God. Let's go to verse 23. So obviously something bad's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. God has said, let's go check it out. And if the bad stuff that people are saying is happening, he's going to take care of it. Before we get into verse 23, people are crying out to God in pain. So effectively, it's like, if you've ever had children, right? You all understand this moment where you are not in the room that they are in and somebody screams, right? And somebody screams because somebody else did something to them. And you have to get to that room and then what? Fact find. Like it's, it's discovery mode. Okay, so someone's screaming and crying. Someone immediately is telling you they didn't do it, right? I mean, that's how that works. Um, and so what then is happening in this moment? God is effectively hearing these screams, these outcries of pain and needs to go check it out. That discovery mode, he's already hinted, may end badly for Sodom and Gomorrah. If the bad stuff that the people are crying about is happening, then that's not going to turn out well for them. That tees up the next section. Verse 23. Abraham came near to God and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the, the place and not forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? For far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again, Abraham spoke to him. Suppose 40 are found there and on and on. Okay, so this scene, Abraham is effectively backing into, are you really going to destroy the city. Put this in the whole context of Genesis up to this point. Remember when God destroyed stuff? What did God say? He's not going to do it again. 
okay? So presumably, Abraham knows that story. It is almost impossible that Abraham knows that story, but whatever. So in the narrative, Abraham is recalling this promise that God said that he would not destroy the world again. Now, we're not talking about the world, but we're talking about a lot of people. And so Abraham is really calling God's attention effectively to who he thinks God's supposed to be. Now, do you think that God is somehow forgetting who he is? No. But do you see how this is a way for the Israelites to work out the problem of evil? Bad things happen. We know that. So who's causing the bad things? Who's allowing the bad things? Can we prevent the bad things? It would be very easy, and we know because lots of people today still say God did that because those people were bad people. No. The Israelites knew that too. God's character is really not this destructive judgment. And so what they're doing in this story is showing that God is actually going to back away from this destruction. Now, I want to make sure that you hear me say, this story is created. This story has been written in order to show the character of God that the Israelites believed God was. It is it's a little hard for us to hold this intention because most of us learned that God did this. Really, this is the Israelites thinking God would have had this kind of conversation with Abraham, not because Abraham is some kind of super great guy, although they certainly thought he was, but because God is the kind of God who won't simply punish innocent people because they happen to be near those who are not innocent. I could keep talking about this, but I want to kind of take a pause to see if there's some clarity that you might want. Any questions or something you want me to say more about a certain thing? So the story does go on to say that God will punish. Well, so the story, kind of the story doesn't say God punishes innocent people. We'll, we'll get there because, but, spoiler alert, Sodom and Gomorrah don't make it. Um, but, yes. So within the context of the Israelites in exile, they do feel like they have been punished. But they're also wrestling with, we can put this in today's parlance, right? I mean, I remember when uh, probably the biggest moment in recent memory for me would be when Hurricane Katrina hit. Um, there are plenty of examples of this, but there seemed to be a lot of back and forth within religious groups, particularly religious leaders, around why. Why did that happen? And lots of people were very quick to say, well, New Orleans is this pit, this pit of evildoers. 
and God's righteous judgment struck down the evil people, right? No, that did not happen. But if you understand God's character through stories like this, without the context of knowing who wrote them and when and why, I can see how you can actually land on the perspective that God looks around and then decides they're too evil, boom. That's not what we see in Jesus. So that's always the thing to hold the tension. Israelites are writing these stories in order to teach people what they believe is most true about God. If we think that they know everything most true about God, what is the point of Jesus? For us, the real point of Jesus is we were misunderstanding the completeness of God. And we have that complete reality revealed to us in the incarnation, in the person of Jesus. That is what Christians believe, in case you were wondering. Um, we can nuance that in many ways, and we always need to stop short of it sounding self-righteous because we certainly, we, all of us, none of us understand Jesus in some full way. But we do in the theological sense believe that in Jesus, the full manifestation, the full revelation and reality of God is present. So that when we come to a situation like this, and we read a story in which God has smote a city, do we think, based on what we know of Jesus, that that sounds like the true character of God? I would argue, no. Then we ask the question, how then did this story come about? That's when the context of knowing that the Israelites are in exile and wrestling with the problem of evil and writing this story because it makes sense to them at that time in that place. It's not a problem, but it is something we have to read with a very clear lens because Jesus has given us that filter for those stories. Different theological groups will answer that question differently? Yes. For sure. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, so the question is, theodicy is pervasive over... Uh, other non-Christian traditions may not use the word theodicy, but the question of evil is universal, right? Question of bad is universal. Every tradition, including different denominational branches of Christianity, will answer that question very differently. So you get from all the way to original sin, which is effectively, we're all destined for hell, 
regardless of what we do without being cleansed by baptism, which is why, you know, one of the, one of the things I had to get used to in the Episcopal church is baptisms tend to happen when the whole family can be there, right? Not in the Catholic church. You've got like to baptize that baby because anything could happen and we don't want the baby going to hell. No, no. Um, and then you've got causality, which is God's up there deciding who is good enough and who's not good enough. And eh. we see in Jesus a very inconveniently patient, loving, gracious person, right? So much more so than all of us. So that whenever we fall short of that, there's, I always feel, this is the, this is the Catholic in me, right? I always feel a little guilty that I fall short of that, like, all the time. Um, in fact, I, this is such a tangent, but I went, we went to Catholic Church over Christmas when we were down in Florida with our, with my in-laws, and sweet little Catholic Church, and my, my um, in-laws prepped my children by saying, so it's a different experience than St. Michael, right? It's, it's church lady at the electronic organ, no choir, okay? Just prepare yourself. Um, and so that was no problem. But when the priest got up and said, and talked about Mary and Joseph and said, they never worried. And do you know why they didn't worry? Because they had faith in God. And I look out at everyone and I see that you are all worried all the time. And if you would just have faith in God, you wouldn't worry anymore. And I was like, what? I mean, that is, that is perfection of Catholic guilt, right? Because what just teed up what, will you ever not worry about something? No. Which, so that every time you worry, now you are not being faithful and then you feel bad about it. I was like, that's, it's wrong and brilliant all at the same time. Um, <laughs> So we walked out of the church and I turned to the children and I said, excuse me, let me tell you something. And I said, this is not, sorry, I corrected that. But, you know, theology is so big in so many ways and theodicy is so complex. Um, for me, it, it reduces down to, we have the free choice to choose God or not. And when we don't, and that's not in some huge salvation moment, right? That's a true thing, but I'm talking about little things. We have the choice to be kind to the person who looks lonely sitting over there in a room full of people you know, right? I mean, little moments where we have little choices where we can show love or not. And every time we choose not to be as loving as we can be, then we allow in a little bit of what is what I term not God. I don't like the words bad or evil and that sort of stuff. I think evil is real, but really evil is not God. So we can basically choose what is godly or not. And every time we choose not God, we just open up a little bit more. It's little cracks or fissures and some things are worse than others, but we're the ones that bring in the opportunity of evil. God is good all the time. And our journey in this human life is seeking after that good. And we're imperfect. And so all the bad stuff is really a side effect of our imperfection. And that's okay. 
And it's difficult for that not to feel like guilt, but it's not. Because what I read in scripture all the way through is that God knows we're not perfect and loves us anyway. That's okay. Okay, Theodicy, there are books and books and books and books on this stuff. So I will stop there um, or else we're gonna be far too, far too in. What, it's 11? Okay, come on. Um, so just save questions. If you have them, a reminder, especially if people haven't done this before, the communication cards that are in the pews are great to submit questions that I can then get to next week. So if I didn't get to one, sorry about that, but leave the cards at the tables and I'll get those. Section two, let's get to the sin of Sodom as the Bible calls it. Chapter 19, start right at the beginning. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So remember where we are, God and the angels and Abraham, they go talk about what might happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham backs God away from destroying the city, even if a few people are good. The angels now are going into Sodom. So they're like um, private eyes. They're going to see what's really happening in Sodom to likely report back to God. So the two angels come to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of Sodom. Pause. Who is Lot? Abraham's cousin, right? So if we remember, they all came from Ur, they all stopped together, Abraham and Lot, they left, and then Abraham and Lot effectively went to two different neighborhoods. So this is not too far away from where Abraham was, but it was not the same place. Lot landed over here, Abraham landed over here. So Abraham has gone on to the place where Lot is living. So Lot, when Lot saw the angels, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Verse two, he said, please, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you can rise early and go on your way. All right, pause. The angels enter Sodom where the outcry has gotten God's attention. And who do they meet? Lot. And Lot's a great guy. Lot's there at the gate, sees two strangers coming in late at night, knows they don't live here. And so immediately says, come and stay with me. Stay the night. I'll take care of you. I will feed you. You can wash up and then you can go on your way in the morning, right? Super simple. This is the hospitality that Abraham showed the angels as well. So if we're reading this concurrently and picking up, Lot has now represented this good hospitality that Abraham was blessed to, or God blessed Abraham because of his hospitality. Lot is showing the same kind of hospitality. But, verse four, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Lot went out of the door to the, I'm sorry, Lot went out of the door to the men, shut the door after him and said, I beg you brothers, do not act so wickedly. <sighs> Look, I have two daughters who have not known a man, let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they replied, stand back. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien and he would play the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near the door to break it down. But the men inside reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. <sighs> Okay, let me retell that. 
Lot has shown up to this city, not born there, not raised there. He is, for some reason, at the gate of the city, sees these angels, brings them in. They've likely had dinner. They've probably washed up. They're about to go to sleep. And the men of the city come banging on the door, wanting the two that were visiting. Lot goes out the door, shuts it behind him. So he is now the shield of these two visitors we know are the angels. And he says, do not come in because these men have been invited as my guests into my house. Then he says, I've got two daughters you can do whatever you want to with, which we can talk about that in a minute. Um, so that's obviously problematic. Um, but the men of the city say, no, we don't want your daughters. We want those two strangers. And Lot, by the way, you are also a stranger. You are not from here. And so now we're going to take care of all three of you. And at that point, as they began to push in, the angels came out of the door, pulled Lot in, shut the door. And so effectively, the angels then protected Lot. So you see how that kind of flipped? Lot was their protector, even though they didn't need him to protect them. And then the angels protected Lot because Lot showed his righteousness. Hospitable and righteous in his defense. Does that all make sense? So... This, I'm sorry. So the daughters, they're still good in the house. They will not be good in a minute. Um, but for now, the daughters are good. So we're, they are safe and they are in the house. So all five of them are now in the house and they are safe. So the obvious issue here that a lot of people bring up is that in verse 5, the men come and they say, bring them, the two strangers, out to us, the men of the city, so that we may know them. The words there mean rape. So what is happening here is that the men of the city are seeking to abuse these strangers. What most, what many people have done over Christian history is then said, the ultimate destruction of Sodom is because these men are evil. Why are they evil? Well, because they want to have sex with other men. That is not what's happening here. What is happening here is that these men are evil because they are abusive. They want to rape. That's different. Rape is rape. Rape is abuse. They, in their abuse will ultimately call down God's judgment. That is really what the story says. People conclude differently because I think it's more convenient to conclude differently. But I want you to know what the story actually says, not what people interpret the story to say. Now, if you do interpret it differently, then you own that interpretation. But I want you to know that's not what is literally in the story. That's all I will say about that, unless you have a question, and then I'm happy to fill that out. Yes? I just want to make an observation. Was, weren't women pretty much chattel mm -hmm. at that point? So it isn't like we're talking, like it's not me too, hashtag me too. So it's very different. Yes, this is not a hashtag me too moment. No. Um, <clears throat> no, uh, 
women were meaningless. So when Lot comes out and says, don't hurt them, take my daughters, and they refuse, the point there is their motivation is as abusers. Abusing a woman is just Wednesday. I mean, that's not, unfortunately, that's the problem, is that's just all the time. I mean, women didn't matter. So the status quo was abuse. It's different when men who should have been strong are then oppressed. So the idea here is those boys aren't from here and they shouldn't be here and we're going to make sure they never come back. That's what's happening there. There is nothing about this that has anything to do with kindness or loving or nothing. This is abuse. This is uh, terrorism. I mean, that is what is happening here. And so, like I said, just know what's there. And then your conclusions are your conclusions. But that is the story. Any other questions? All right, so the, real quick, it's not really that critical, um, but if we look at verses 15 and a handful of verses, Lot is chosen to be saved from the destruction that will come upon Sodom. Lot's told to run, escape from the city, but don't turn around. So Lot doesn't, Lot's daughters do not, but Lot's unnamed wife, talk about women not mattering, we don't even know her name, um, Lot's unnamed wife turns around and becomes a pillar of salt. That's it. There is no context, there's no exposition around it. She's just all of a sudden salt and we move on. I don't, there's not much to say about that. I just kinda wanna note that happened because that's one of those little story moments that people may remember from childhood or bring up to you that happens right here as they escape Sodom. There's a great little comic in the pre-sacristy um, and it's one of those far side comics where the man is carrying a big statue and the caption says, sorry, honey, but the driveway's icy. And it says, it says Lot's house, you know, um, sorry. Okay. All right, let's keep going. So, section three. Moab and Ammon. I will summarize this section as effectively every culture makes fun of some other culture. And this story is just creating a way for the Israelites to make fun of the people that they wanted to make fun of. So the Moabites and the Ammonites were already people who lived east of the Jordan River. So if you think about Israel, Israel runs north and south. The Jordan River runs from the Sea of Galilee south into the Dead Sea. Today, the Jordan River is the border between Israel and Jordan. All right. Back in the day with the kingdoms, it, there was a similar border at the river. Canaan is what is modern-day Israel, west of the Jordan River. Moabite, Moab and Ammon, the Moabites and the Ammonites, are east of the Jordan River. Does that make sense? 
By the time the Israelites are in exile, they already do not like the Moabites and the Ammonites. And the Moabites and the Ammonites are kind of the lesser, the lower class Semitic peoples. Here's what's interesting. They are Semitic people. So they're basically cousins of the Israelites. But as is often the case, when someone's really close to you, but not the same, that's almost the worst. And so the Moabites and the Ammonites really become the butt of Israel's joking, and not even jokes. They are the second-class citizens of that region. Israelites, the first-class citizens. Moabites, Ammonites, second-class. That has all already happened. When they write this story, they're effectively giving the backstory of why they are justified in believing that the Ammonites and the Moabites are second-class citizens. Does that make sense? So, to get into this, I looked up jokes about English people um, because I'm English, and so I figured I would look up how do people make fun of British people. And so I found a great website where French, a French website making fun of the British, which is great. So here are a few jokes, and this is what Israelites would be doing with the Ammonites and the Moabites. So I loved these and just needed to share them. So a plane crashes on a desert island. There are only a few survivors, three Spanish people, three French people, and an Englishman. Six months later, one of the Spanish men has killed the other and is now living with the Spanish woman. Makes sense. The three French people have decided to become a threesome. That makes sense. And the Englishman is still waiting to be introduced to the others. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Another. I have more. Okay. An Englishman is on the green of a golf course about to take a putt. Suddenly, a funeral procession passes by. The Englishman raises his hat to his chest as the limo passes, as if in deep reflection. His partner says, I never knew a man such as yourself was such a gentleman. To which the Englishman responds, well, we were married for 40 years. <laughs> I thought it was really good. I thought it was a good one. Okay. Okay, I'm done now. I won't give you the others. Okay. Okay, chapter 19, verse 30. We had to have a laugh because of what's coming, okay? Chapter 19, verse 30. Lot and his daughters have escaped the destruction of Sodom. They have gone to a neighboring town, Zoar, that they do not like, or at least Lot doesn't like. So Lot went up and out of Zoar and settled in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Verse 31, the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the world. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him so that we may preserve offspring through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in, lay with her father and he did not know when she lay down or when she rose. Thus, and then on and on. Verse 36, thus both of the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and named him Moab. He is the ancestor of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and named him Ben-Ami. He is the ancestor of the Ammonites to this day. All right. 
in that quick little story, we get a horrible situation with Lot's daughters seducing him to get pregnant and have sons who become the ancestors of the people the Israelites don't like. So now they can really make fun of them and justify treating them as second-class citizens. That's really the whole story. Any questions about that? I read through it again, you know, prior to this, to this, to today. And I just, I can't, I don't know how many times I have read that story. And every time I read it, I just shit, what? It's awful. It's horrible. Ugh. Okay. So now, now we can let that go. Chapter 20. Chapter 20. We get the structure of a story we have heard before. Let's start at the beginning. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the region of the Negev. So just pause. <laughs> we get the whole story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We get Lot leaving. Lot's wife dies. Lot's daughters seduce him. They have babies by their father and all your stuff. And then it's just like, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the region. Um, so all of that happens, and they just sort of leave it. Abraham has seen all of this happen, presumably, because it almost implies that Abraham has sort of with God and the angels watched all of these things happen. Now Abraham's on the move again. So from there, Abraham journeyed to the region of the Negev and settled between Kedesh and Shur. While residing in Gerar as an alien, Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. And King Abimelech of Gerar sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, You are about to die because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. I did this in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. Furthermore, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die. <laughs> Sorry, you and all that are yours. Okay, so we've seen this before, right, in Egypt. So Abraham goes into this land he doesn't really know. He is not really well defended because he's not from there. And so he's married to still apparently a very attractive Sarah, who is, what, nearing 100. And, <laughs> and so, so he's afraid that they're going to see her and kill him, her husband, in order to get her to be part of the harem. So, same story plays out. Tell him you're my sister. So he says, oh king, she's my sister. And apparently she says, yes, he's my brother. And so she is taken into what is effectively King Abimelech's harem. But Abimelech just hasn't gotten around to Sarah. And so in a dream, God says, you're about to die because you've done this bad thing. And so apparently Abimelech and God are having these conversations and dreams. So Abimelech says, wait a minute. She said that she was his sister and I haven't done anything yet. 
So the integrity is still there, which means they really have, he really has not committed adultery, nor has Sarah integrity. And that Abimelech was only doing what was sort of right and good and normal and expected or whatever. And so God says, if you give her back to Abraham, everything will be okay because Abraham is a prophet. I find that so funny because here Abraham has been such a jerk and God's like, yep, he's my prophet. In that moment, do you think God is proud of this? Because God has had to go in and clean this up and Abraham has effectively been such a chicken that he can't claim what he knows is right, yet God still claims him. Isn't it nice that even when we do something that dumb, God still claims us? I kind of like that moment where Abraham, a prophet, given all of these opportunities, all of these gifts, all of these skills, can still be such a bonehead and God hangs in with him. He may have walked away from God, but God's not walking away from him. And I love that kind of truth, I think it's true, for all of us too. Nothing we can do will separate us from God. Now, we have to at least try to turn back. I mean, that's the whole idea of repenting from whatever it is that we've done. But we repent, at least I do, knowing full well I'll screw it up again, but also knowing full well that God will let me back, will bring me back, will not abandon me. And we get that kind of truth here with Abraham in this moment, even after he's done what he does here. Someone not hearing their phone. Um, even though, thank you. Um, even though Abraham has done a terrible thing, and it's not just a terrible thing, he's done the same terrible thing again, right? So it's doubly worse. Even then, God claims him, and I think that's really great. The other thing that I think is good here is Abimelech, what his words to God should sound redundant to us. So, God comes to Abimelech in a dream and says, you're about to die because you've taken this woman who's married. And Abimelech says, Lord, will you destroy an innocent people? That's the same kind of conversation Abraham just had with God about Sodom. All throughout these chapters, the Israelites are working out the same idea. Bad things happen, but God isn't bad. And so when they have the opportunity to either remind God of innocence so that God can say, yes, you're right, or very clearly define some really awful evil, then the Israelites probably feel comfortable with where God is in relationship to them. So they're not, so if so long as the Israelites don't, what, rape strangers, okay, then maybe God won't destroy them. I'd feel comfortable with that. I feel like I can stay on this side of that line, right? And then here, so long as one is not stealing and committing adultery with someone's spouse, then they won't be destroyed. Okay, 
feel very comfortable staying on that line too. So what has happened here is the Israelites have not gone so far as to say God's judgment or vindication can't or won't happen, but that the line one needs to cross for God to act is pretty far, right? Normal bad things, normal misjudgments, normal problems and mistakes do not cross that kind of line, right? The line over here that destroys Sodom or kills all the people in Gerar is a line we can all be pretty confident and comfortable we don't need to cross. I think that what Jesus gets to is something even better where God doesn't cross that line, period. It just doesn't happen. The Israelites prior to Jesus set up a structure where in essence, they probably land where most Christians actually land themselves, which is God can act in righteous judgment or vindication for bad stuff, but it's gotta be bad. That's really where the Israelites landed. Where Jesus lands is grace, period. Grace, that's it. There really is no place we can go to that will ever separate us from God's love, period. And we all don't really like that because it's not fair, right? Because most of us are really not bad people. I mean, we do we do dumb things and we're not always kind and we're a little thoughtless and we may not be as compassionate or as sympathetic as we should be and all of those things. But man, there are some people doing really horrible things out there and they get God's grace too. That does not seem fair. That is perhaps the problem that we wrestle with as church people. Um, and yet for me, that is the most beautiful thing about God is that we, our limitations do not apply. God is limitless. And whenever I see stories of redemption, that's what impacts me most deeply because I think that is the greatest truth that Jesus corrects about people's perceptions of God that carries us through in our own discipleship. So that's the end of chapter 20 in a formal sense. Maybe one question, if anyone has one, before we wrap up. Yes, sir. Is grace automatic or do we have to ask for it? Is that what you said? So that's an interesting question because for, oh, Steve, I don't have time for this, Steve. Okay. Um, do you all remember, if you don't know this, um, this, is, this is an interesting little nugget. If you were to tell a story about heaven or hell or any of that sort of stuff and describe it to someone, you would almost certainly describe what Dante wrote. The Bible is not terribly descriptive about heaven and hell, 
But Dante wrote his three big stories in order to flesh out and put a lot of color around the idea of both heaven, hell, and what? Purgatory, right? So what happened in Dante's story to all the people who were good but lived before Jesus? You remember? They just weren't in real heaven. They were sort of in the narthex of heaven. They were like on the sidewalk outside the gate of heaven, right? And it's not bad. It's not good. Um, but they, they're sort of in that middle place where it's just sorry that they live before Jesus. Sorry. Um, that is an interesting idea. And I would say was the most common idea through most of Christian history. In fact, maybe that's still the most common idea um, for Christians today. I think that where I land, this is just me, I will, I will not speak for the Episcopal Church. Um, what Jesus did was to clarify the truth, was to reveal the truth that was always the truth. We just didn't get it. I think it's, it is problematic for me when it comes to God's character to say that God's love, God's grace, all of those things did not pre-exist Jesus. Was there a clear path to that grace before Jesus? No. But did it exist? I think the answer has to be yes. It, otherwise, it doesn't really, the story seems problematic to me, that God would have somehow created a world in which no one could actually achieve full oneness with God. That doesn't seem right. But Jesus did do something. And for me, Jesus clarified Ugh, clarified is not the best word, but it's the only one I can think of right now. Made sure we knew the proper path. It's not that the path wasn't there, but it's like he pruned the bushes so we could actually see it. And it's, he became kind of the way in to what was there, but difficult to find. And so when it comes to God's grace, it's there. I don't think, when I read the Bible, I don't see that Jesus ever considered some kind of magic words necessary to receive God's grace and love. We've structured that, but for me, that tends to be the difference between, say, religion and spirituality, like I like religion, I mean, obviously, but I, I do see that religion, when religion becomes a barrier or some kind of wall, it's not really doing what it should. Religion should grease the wheels of people's relationship with God, not create boundaries or hurdles for people to have to jump over or go through in order to get to God. And by creating this sense of, well, if you're not baptized, you're going to hell. And if you're not all the other stuff, I think all of those rituals 
matter and they are true, but we're not magicians. We're not performing a magic trick on a baby when they're baptized. That's why you almost always hear me say baptism is a starting point. It's a commitment we make. God loved us, but in baptism, we've said, now we want to love God back. And we've got our whole life to figure out how to do that as best we can. But God didn't start loving us when we were baptized. God loved us from the beginning. We just simply mark the moment when we take responsibility for that love ourselves. And then you can kind of expand that to many other of those somewhat innocently established hurdles that try to make God seem far away from who we were created to be. And that's all I got. (laughs) Happy Wednesday. I'll see you all next week.